in Strasbourg, they could hold Russia, the Russian state accountable, as opposed to like what you mentioned, we have this criminal trial here when you can hold, you know, criminal defendants specifically responsible. You can't do that in a, in a national court. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Janet Anderson. And I'm Stephanie van den Berg. Life caught up with us the last two weeks, and uh, we didn't come around to an important case before, uh, but we will now. On January the 26th at the European Court of Human Rights, there was an exceptionally long and raucous, as we understand, hearing concerning, among other things, the downing of flight MH17. That was in 2014. Nearly 300 people were killed as their aeroplane was shot down over Ukraine. And neither of us could travel to Strasbourg for the hearing, so we roped in friend of the show, uh, Molly Quell, who we allowed on despite her symmetrical haircuts, but we'll have words about this later. She did go to France and watch the session in person, and Molly covers international law for Courthouse News Service. Hi, Molly. Hello. So, Molly, I think you're just back from um, a week-long stay at a ski chalet. We made the uh, sort of annual Dutch pilgrimage to do the winter sport vacancy uh, thing. You know, it's it's lovely to go, and I'm always quite happy to sort of be home and sleep in my own bed. So did you ski? I did not. Uh, they, the in-laws, everyone is quite good uh, at skiing or snowboarding, and I am quite mediocre. And so decided early on that my approach to this was to take a lot of books and lay on the couch in front of a fireplace with the dog and, like, look at pretty snow out the window. And that's, you know, that is not a bad way to spend a week, so... Sounds exactly like my kind of vacation, I must say. Um, so let's turn to the hearing. Um, so you were there at the court, actually, in January, and you keep on going back to the ECHR? Yeah, um, for sort of my regular gig, I cover the ECHR pretty regularly. I've been there a few times to uh, to the court in Strasbourg, which looks a little sort of like a two alien spaceships have landed simultaneously. <laughs> And for listeners who don't really know, because we don't cover a lot of uh, European Court of Human Rights law cases, what is it exactly? So the ECHR is the International Court of the Council of Europe, which was created by the European Convention on Human Rights. Sometimes it's called the Strasbourg Court because it's like located there. It's one tram stop away from the European Union Parliament building, although this is not an EU institution, which I think is often a misconception. Yeah, I get very confused by these these different uh, terminology. What what I have read about it is that it was created after the Second World War and it's not the same thing as the European Council, which is something to do with the EU. And it was um, kind of a way of bringing Europe together and it's all about human rights, as you would expect from the title, and the rule of law across all of these countries. How, how many countries? There's 47 uh, member states in all. So this is much bigger than the European Union. Um, The court is very active, exceedingly active. Um, It's, you know, we're talking hundreds of rulings a month, I think, come out of the court. 
um, the rulings are binding on member states. So you will hear sort of things being referred to in domestic court cases. I mean, there's been quite a lot of references, actually, for example, at the MH17 trial, the criminal trial in the Netherlands to, you know, sort of um, um, equality of arms questions between, you know, the defense and the, the public prosecutor's office. And they, they will be referencing these sort of ECHR decisions. So you do see its impact kind of on the national court system. So why have the Netherlands and Ukraine bought a complaint against Russia there? Because we have this MH17 criminal trial here uh, near Amsterdam. Why also go to Strasbourg? Well, so in Strasbourg, they could hold Russia, the Russian state, accountable, as opposed to, like what you mentioned, we have this criminal trial here when you can hold you know, criminal defendants specifically responsible. You can't do that in a, in a national court. This hearing on the 26th was about more than just MH17. Um, Ukraine has filed several complaints against Russia for the annexation of Crimea, for supporting separatist groups in these parts of eastern Ukraine. So the MH17 thing is kind of part of this bigger kind of package of um, disputes between Ukraine and Russia. So what are the bits of the MH17 uh, parts? What, what, what's that referring to? Well, what the hearing on in January focused on specifically was whether or not Russia had territorial control of this part of eastern Ukraine where the MH17 was shot down from, where the Buk missile that shot MH17 was shut down from. Um, you know, people who are kind of familiar with international humanitarian law and stuff will you know, know that like this sort of question of territorial control has a lot of ramifications in these issues of armed conflicts. Um, there's about 8,500 individual cases that have been brought that have kind of been lumped in with these interstate cases. Um, and those about 400 of which relate to MH17. So this is relatives of the passengers, that kind of thing. The rest of the cases sort of involve, you know, people who are living in eastern Ukraine. Um, there was a number of children who Ukraine said, who Russia, Ukraine said that Russia kidnapped. They sort of took custody of some groups of kids. There was a group, I think, on a school trip and stuff um, that who were eventually returned back to Ukraine. Um, but like these kinds of stuff. So there's there's a number of these um, individual cases that have also kind of gotten like lumped in altogether. MH17 is just sort of one part of this kind of big thing. So um, you sound to me like you're already a specialist on the ECHR because it's certainly something I know relatively little about. But I understand that um, on our behalf and maybe also on your own, you've spoken to a specialist, somebody who can uh, help us understand in more depth what it's about? Interstate cases at the ECHR are pretty rare. Um, I think there's been about 20 sort of in the court's history. So actually, as I was preparing for this hearing, I spoke to Isabella Rossini. She's a visiting professor at the University of Augsburg um, in Germany, and her research focuses on the court, and in particular, these interstate applications where two countries have a dispute rather than an individual against a state. And so we're going to play that interview. But before we do, I listened to back to the hearing and also some of the things that you said to watch out for. And from the clips, I have to say it was much more lively than what I would expect from an ECHR hearing. We'll give our uh, listeners a little audio impression to get in the mood. La cour 
and this is the, the the bell that they ring before the court, which is very much like recess. So I got a big high yeah. school vibe out of that. I don't know if exactly. You... you sort of feel like you're being kind of like called into class. You better sit down and pay attention. Yeah. At first up, we have the lawyer for Ukraine. He is Ben Emerson, and he knows his way around some snappy phrases. Yeah, he's quite entertaining to listen to. Also, he knows how to wear a great suit. Like he's always quite snappily dressed. Um, so I always sort of enjoy when I kind of encounter him in, in some sort of international court situation. Russia is once again gaslighting the international community and trying to gaslight this court in a posture that amounts to a denial of justice and accountability to the many thousands of victims of these human rights violations, victims who continue to be denied any effective remedy by the Russian Federation or its uh, subordinate authorities. One of the things that I think made it a kind of special for the ECHR is that the Dutch also made space for victims' representations. And here we saw Piet Ploeg, who we've also seen in the MH17 trial in the Netherlands, um, talk about how important it was for victims. Is this the first time that, that victims actually addressed the, the Strasbourg court? As far as anybody can tell, this is the first time that someone has spoken um, on behalf of the victims. Some of this, I think, is a bit of a change kind of in international law to begin with. I mean, a lot of these sort of international cases kinds of in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, they the, the idea really seemed to be that like the victims didn't really have that much of a voice in the the proceedings. This was like not considered something that was like important. We've seen that kind of shift. I mean, people who sort of regularly watch the International Criminal Court know that like the, it was a big thing for the for the victims to play a much bigger role in the proceedings. Um, but yeah, this was extremely unusual. And as far as anybody can tell, I think it was the first time in the court's history. Nobody at the court or anybody who studied the court could recall something like this happening before. I would like to thank the court for the opportunity granted to address the court on behalf of the next of kin. It's important for the next of kin to be able to address the court in person today, as stated by a next of kin, and I quote, a next of kin, as next of kin, it's our obligation to our beloved ones to bring this whole process to an acceptable end. So there you had Ploeg, uh, then we had Russia, whose representative sounded super stressed about everything. For to me, he 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 gave the impression of somebody who was kind of just pushed on the stage last minute with somebody else's speech. But he also said some super questionable things about the findings of the joint investigation team. Is he the guy that usually represents Russia? Because we usually see super polished lawyers in these cases, and he was none of that. No, I was also surprised. Usually what happens and what happened with Ukraine is, is that, you know, the country has an agent. It's much like the International Court of Justice. The agent gives a little speech at the beginning and then like the lawyers take over for like the real arguments. The Dutch tend to send a like a civil servant. So this is also what they had there. So they kind of like do the whole like shebang themselves. But a lot of countries, you know, they sort of send it. They have an agent at the court and the agent kind of does the little intro where you get your spicy quote and then like they hand it off to the experts. Usually Russia has a quite sort of polished well-paid lawyer that represents them there. I am not sure. I could not get a clear answer as to whether or not there was a reason that they went um, only with their agent to be presenting or if I don't know, their lawyer got COVID at the last minute or something like this. Uh, but yeah, like you said, this this guy, I mean, he really did not seem like he was having a good day, I think. I would like to assure you that we are also interested in finding the truth. 
No investigation is concluded at the moment. No trial is concluded in any state. We know that Russia bears no responsibility in this respect. This is what we know. We also know that it was the airspace of the Ukraine which was managed by the Ukrainian authorities. What we know is that uh, it, was, uh, and it was established by the experts of the District Court of The Hague that launch was done from the territory under control of the Ukrainian armed forces. And we also know, and it is a matter of fact, that the missile, as presented by the joint investigation team, is the Ukrainian one. Uh, we understand that the victims, they, they, they clearly want the truth, and we are willing to assist them. And uh, on behalf of the Russian Federation, I would like to declare that we will make available every piece of document transferred to the Dutch authorities on the MLA request. And we are well prepared to go further. We will make them publicly available. And everybody can see what is true and what is not. And there you also hear some of the claims he's making. And what surprised me is that Emerson really lashed out against that. It was really harsh for a lawyer. Usually they use a bit more flowery language to put people down. But here he's just um, outright saying what he thinks. Why does counsel for Russia or the agent for Russia stand up in front of this court and tell you that we know as a fact Russia had no responsibility, that it was shot from an area under Ukrainian government control and that it was a Ukrainian missile. Those are lies, and they're not mistakes. They're lies. And the Russian government knows they're lies because they sent the missile. So the question is, you know, it, 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 it's, it's easy enough if you have an opponent who's prepared to descend to those levels to start saying it's all too confusing, it's a situation of chaos. It's not chaos. This is an attack on this institution. It's an attack on democratic institutions. It's daring you to disbelieve. It's typical and classic of Russian international strategy. It's lying in your face, knowing you know it's a lie, and seeing what, how much pressure that puts on this central constitutional court of the entire Council of Europe. Yeah, he was quite Dutch, sort of, in his directness, I guess. Unlike <laughs> yes. the Dutch, who were quite, like, sort of reserved and just sort of straightforward. He got inspired, maybe. Yeah. So this was an eventful hearing. Let's turn now to your interview with Isabella Rossini. And um, when you talk to her, the, it's, the, it's the day after the court hearing. So you, when you refer to yesterday, you're talking about the, the day of the court hearing. And uh, you first asked her about intrastate cases, uh, which are rare before the ECHR. 
Yeah, we started out talking about that, and then we talked a little bit about the the hearing specifically that had happened, as you said, the the day before. She's followed a lot of the Russia cases at the ECHR, so she was able to give some some insight into kind of what had happened. Interstate cases are indeed rare. So we've only had some 25, this uh, depends on how you count, 20, 25 situations that were before the court in an interstate context. Um, and uh, we have some usual suspects that are uh, the respondents in, in such cases, um, some of them including Turkey, and especially since um, 2007, it is um, Russia that has found itself in the role of the respondent. Um, one um, case that is maybe worthwhile to mention here in the history um, is also a, a case against Greek um, at the time when in the 1960s there was a military regime and uh, some, some states joined uh, up uh, forces and brought proceedings, um, which was very important. Um, I've uh, attended a conference 50 years later in order to sort of see what happened there, um, what brutality, what torture was uh, inflicted upon individuals. So it's a very important aspect of these um, cases that the facts are found. Um, history is somehow uh, written uh, here in Strasbourg. So this is a very important feature of the Strasbourg Convention system. And my understanding from yesterday is, is that there are also a number of individual applications. Um, so where a person is bringing a complaint against a state, um, both from uh, Ukrainian citizens or people who are living in that, that region, as well as a number of relatives who are on MH17, um, who are bringing complaints on, on behalf of their loved ones that died. These process is quite complicated right now because there's a number of different cases. So could you just kind of briefly um, explain kind of what the cases are that are at stake here? So we have um, several cases that overlap, as we call this. And first, maybe to state it clearly, the convention doesn't really regulate this sort of confusion between interstate cases and individual cases. It doesn't do this because um, the default mechanism was, in fact, the interstate application when the convention was drafted in the 1950s. Um, now we have um, the individual applications and the interstate applications that somehow can be uh, overlapping and the, the convention doesn't regulate this because no one really foresaw uh, that problem. So now we have individuals that seek um, probably similar things uh, as um, the interstate applications uh, try to establish. So they try to establish what happened, who is responsible, and ideally also um, the court uh, is asked to uh, give some financial remuneration in the wording of the convention. This would be a just satisfaction. So the, the goal Goals are similar, um, and the, the sort of issue that is between them is uh, the question whether, whether the, the, the proceedings are all designed to achieve individual justice or whether this is rather something that would be called a collective enforcement of human rights. I think both goals can though, be achieved. When I was there yesterday, there were some people who were expressing surprise that Russia was even participating in these proceedings. I think that there's a lot of sense that, you know, Russia is not interested in participating in human rights trials, that they don't care about the international stage in this way. But Russia is actually quite active and, and defending itself at the court, unlike, for example, Turkey, who tends to not turn up when they are called to, to appear. Do you have a sense of why Russia wants to participate? 
is a good question. And I think it is important to say it is good that they still are interested in this. They are also very active in the reform process that is um, underlying the interstate applications as such. So they are, express their opinions, they try to defend themselves. And now to say why this is, um, I have to honestly say, I don't know that, but it's a good sign. One, one thing that we can sort of also underline is that Russia has filed a, a counter application, so has actively now um, been trying to assign uh, responsibility about the events in question here to other states. So this is a good thing that um, Russia tries to interact with the system and is not completely indifferent as we see in other cases, for example, in the Turkish cases sometimes, but also um, if we compare this to other states, like for example, of the US um, is a state that is not bound by any such convention uh, in a similar manner and is not cannot be held accountable in an international court, which is, as I said, uh, not something that is um, to be taken lightly. The consent of a state to be um, brought before an international court is something that is rather unique. So what are the big issues that are at stake here? What's what is this? What do the judges have to sort of decide on now? So I think the biggest issue in the room is um, the jurisdictional issue. So this means uh, Russia can only be held accountable if the court um, is satisfied that Russia had control in some way over the events. So had control either over the territory in question or the the persons that operated, for example, this um, book missile shooting apparatus. So um, there the court would need to be satisfied that Russia is directly responsible by having control. So this is going to be the, the decisive, I think, matter. And um, the, the agents and also the court has uh, posed many questions in that regard, have uh, sort of uh, tried to argue in one way or the other that uh, this is um, in fact there. So and, and Russia says, well, this is not our territory when we have nothing to do with this. Um, which is a, an easier a type of argument, but they haven't sort of been very convincingly arguing why now this type of military equipment was suddenly available to uh, random armed bands uh, in, in, their, in their submission. So this is not credible. It's, it's, um, I'd like to also maybe observe that um, this time uh, Russia has not used Michael Swainson, which is, um, uh, would be the counterpart to Ben Emerson that was um, pleading in favor of Ukraine. So um, I'm also not sure why, why that happened, uh, but maybe this decision also is, is interesting to reflect upon why Russia chose to argue this directly in that manner, um, yeah. because I think actually they have a, a weak case there, Russia. There was a, there was a, an important uh, decision earlier this uh, last year in, in uh, I think it was also last year in January there was uh, Georgia versus Russia number two decided and the court there decided that it couldn't sort of say who was responsible in a in a period of four or five days where there was an active sort of exchange of hostilities and it is not not so clear how the court will translate this judgment into this context where we have not only four or five days of military um, exchanges or uh, actually fighting, but uh, a prolonged period of fighting and also a prolonged period of influence that changes over time. So uh, Ben Emerson, so the agent for Ukraine, had used several maps in order to sort of illustrate that this was a bit of a problem to determine uh, where, when, what happened, uh, under which control. So this is actually a factual problem, a challenge 
And it's not easy for the court to also deal with these factual challenges. Yeah, war is uh, not that clear cut, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually very complicated. And um, yeah, and we have also another set of rules, so international humanitarian law that somehow regulates um, the conduct of hostilities. And these rules uh, arguably in some, some, some key aspects do uh, differ from human rights law. So they would have to, they need to be reconciled with each other. Um, and this was also discussed uh, rather lengthily between the parties. Was there anything in particular yesterday that you thought was particularly interesting, sort of legally questionable? There was uh, a lot of raucous behavior from the audience, which I have never seen happen at the court before. So, so I, I, I would observe that the Russian agent uh, had a bin of Coca-Cola next to him. Yeah, I right. <laughs> Very, very interesting. Odd, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, as I, I think that, that uh, he was quite incoherent, the Russian uh, agent there. So I, the, the, the help of Mr. Swainston would have been probably good. Uh, yeah. In, in my modest uh, sort of view, I think this would have helped a bit to present the case in a more coherent manner. I found it interesting, and this was a first, as far as I'm aware, uh, in an interstate proceeding that um, the victims in the, in the person of uh, Mr. Plöck uh, got, got something to say there. Yeah. So this was, um, I think, also important. And I, I sort of really um, do respect uh, the Netherlands' decision to sort of allocate uh, these 10 minutes uh, to give the voice uh, to these victims, which never really happened, as far as I'm aware, yeah. in, in, in an oral hearing. So in, yeah. the, in the very sort of first interstate cases, the victims were not even consulted with. So no one asked them. And uh, also in the very beginnings, uh, sometimes the victims would remain nameless. And uh, sometimes they would give them numbers uh, sort of uh, this was changed a lot. I think this is good yeah. and uh, uh, worthwhile to underline that now uh, we have actual real persons behind this. So Molly, did you manage to speak to some of the um, representatives of victims, some of the Dutch families who are there? What did they feel, think about being in this environment? Yeah, I got um I got a bit of a crash course in that. So as I was waiting at the airport for my flight to go to Strasbourg, I ran into uh, Piet Plug, Antoine Quota, um, and uh, Marika de Hone, who is the academic from she's now with the Vrij Universiteit, who's been sort of the kind of go-to expert on um, the MH17 criminal case. It was very discombobulating. All of a sudden, I was kind of like sitting there, very focused on my work, and then Mar uh, Marika was like sort of standing right in front of me, and I was a little sort of taken aback, but. We d I did get the opportunity to speak with them, and they really seemed to be sort of, ex I don't know if excited is the right word, but very happy that they were going to be representing the victims. It seems that the victims at least had expressed a lot of gratefulness to the court and to the Dutch government for sort of handing off 10 minutes of their presentation. You know, they really seem to think that this is important, I think. Because a lot of people hold the Russian state accountable. And while the criminal case here in the Netherlands might hold these individuals accountable, I think a lot of the victims' families want Russia this itself to be held accountable. I mean, they sort of want Moscow to sort of, uh, you know, I think they would love an apology. I don't think anybody's going to get that. But, you know, they, you know, there is a chance that if the court rules in their favor that they could get some um, sort of just satisfaction as the court calls it but like financial remuneration um but i think even at a, at a bare minimum saying like yeah the russian state was responsible for what happened to their relatives seems to be a thing that they would they would like to see um and the echr is pretty much their only outlet for that 
Yeah, what I also felt is that here they can say what they feel when they know, you know, the Russian, the agent for Russia has to sit through it. He's sitting on the other side of that table. And I think they're super frustrated with the MH17 trial in Schiphol, where there's lawyers for the um, suspects there, but the suspects are still at large. They are in Russia. And so um, they can talk, but they're never really sure if Russia is kind of listening officially. And here they have, uh, you know, the very nervous dude uh, having a very bad day, having to listen to them. So, so I think that uh, I, I imagine that also is also part of why they really, really wanted to speak at this forum. Yeah, there was a lot of sort of deliberate staring um, when Mr. Pluch was speaking. There was a lot of the people who sort of had come, there were some other, I think, family members kind of in the audience who kind of did some shouting and a little booing and hissing, which is the first time I've seen anything like that at the ECHR. This was, I think, I think some of the court staff felt a little sort of, I don't know if intimidated is the right word, but a little like concerned that the Dutch were were getting a little too out of hand, basically. Um, It was quite raucous, I think, for an international court hearing. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that, you know, there was a person, somebody who is employed by the Russian state who they could sort of take some of their frustrations out on. And that that seems to be a thing that, that I think gave them some, yeah, pleasure in a way. At the end of your chat with Isabella, you asked her uh, what we also always ask guests, like, what did you what did you want to say that we that I haven't asked? And she had some interesting take on the kind of case this was and what, what is really important here. I think what I'd like to underline is that fact-finding in this case is of very central, crucial importance. So it is um, disputed between the parties what happened. Um, so Russia keeps to keeps on denying all kinds of responsibility. So I think fact-finding and ascertaining the facts in a transparent manner is, is, is of, of the really utmost importance. And it is, of course, problematic or difficult to do so. It's it's not an easy task. And it is also not an easy task in view of the limited resources available to the court. um, And also in view of uh, problems that the court faces that it has already a lot of work to do. But I would like to underline that the fact finding, which is something that it's not very much used to do because it usually deals with legal questions and not so much factual questions. This distinguishes the interstate proceedings from the individual ones. So individual cases usually come uh, with predetermined facts and only legal questions have to be dealt with. Here, the factual work is very crucial also for accepting this case, um, accepting the outcome of this case. And therefore, I would hope that the court takes the time uh, to ascertain the facts and sort of does not uh, defer it to other bodies or say it cannot do it because it's too complicated. So fact-finding, I mean, you know, courts like the ECHR and some of the other ones that we cover are normally really concerned with solidly legal questions and they're not normally, you know, ones that really want to get into the facts on the ground. Um, So that must be quite different from the things that you've covered previously at the ECHR. Yeah, it's much more common that, I mean, the ECHR itself has a mechanism that says you have to sort of exhaust domestic remedies before you can send your case to the ECHR. So generally what they get is this kind of huge stack of domestic legal filings, right? Where like, 
you know, Supreme Courts and constitutional courts have already ruled on these issues. The facts really aren't very much in dispute. Whereas in this case, the facts are very much in dispute. And unlike the International Criminal Court, the ECHR has no capacity to do investigative research of its own. They don't have investigators on the ground. They cannot send people to eastern Ukraine and do interviews. So like... I think there's a lot of discussion about what exactly the court is going to be able to accomplish here. You know, there has been a lot of research into the downing of MH17, and there's these, you know, sort of reports from the joint investigation team. Russia disputes a lot of that. I mean, they were clearly trying to present their own version of the facts at the hearing. But for the bigger issues about, like, you know, these issues that are going on in eastern Ukraine, I mean, they don't, there hasn't been these big inquiries into this in the same way. So I think the judges here have a really hard yeah, a lot of work cut out for them in terms of like how they sort of suss out what the truth is. So it's going to be interesting to see what comes out. I think your expert said it, and I'm not sure I put that clip in that it will probably take six months or something before they rule on um, whether Russia had this effective control, and then they will move on to, to what that means. Um, so basically, you you did our jobs for us uh, with this episode. I'm here but, for you. But you're also our guest, and so we like to ask you the guest questions because, you know, also we just want to pick your brain. Um, so first of all, we have the traditional asymmetrical haircuts question. Did we forget anything, or is there anything you want to mention about the ECHR in this case that uh, we didn't ask you about or we didn't get to? Well, I think maybe in my interview with Isabella, I talked about this a little bit, but you mentioned it at the end, and I do think it's a good thing to mention. Um, Yeah, we are expecting sort of a ruling within six months, which is extremely fast for the ECHR, like wildly fast for the ECHR. Um, So uh, there seems to be some push going on that's kind of fast-tracked this case in a way. I mean, oftentimes when I cover cases at the ECHR, it's stuff that happened like 15 years ago. I mean, MH17 was a long time ago, seven years ago, but by sort of ECHR standards, I mean, this is like extremely quick. Um, So I do think that that's kind of like an interesting thing. I think when you talk to people who are sort of um, involved in cases of international justice, one thing that they always complain about is how slow it moves. So I think it might be nice for the victims, both the MH17 victims, as well as the sort of Ukrainian victims to kind of maybe see justice move a little bit faster. Um, That makes me wonder an, an extra question, which is what is the linkage between what is going on here and this bigger picture of what we see of what's going on in the border with Ukraine and and Russia. I mean, is that maybe one of the reasons why it's being pushed forward because it's such a, a hot potato? There was a lot of discussion about this during the hearing. Russia clearly did not want to discuss the fact that they are building up troops on the border with Ukraine. And Ukraine was real keen to talk about the fact that there are a lot of troops on their border. I think in a way, actually, Russia has been engaging in some... I mean, officially, these are not delaying tactics. Officially, their ad hoc judges continue to have scheduling conflicts for the hearings. Um, the, the hearing has been pushed twice already. And I think actually this did them a little bit of a disservice because I think a lot more people paid attention to this hearing than they would have otherwise because of the the sort of troop buildup. Um, I, I think it, it didn't make Russia look very good that everybody's sort of, you know, seeing all these troops being amassed on the Ukrainian border. 
But yeah, I mean, this is one of the, you know, I, I suspect that if something goes further with what's happening now with Russia, we're going to see more cases sort of at the ECHR um, in the future regarding this. I devised a new uh, asymmetrical haircuts question that I was going to keep secret from you so you couldn't prepare very Yeah, much. I saw that. Now um. I'm trying to Google it so I can look up the name of what I want to say. <laughs> so my my question is, do you have a favorite court case that, that you like to talk about or that you like to give as an example or the wackiest thing you've seen? Or it can be ECHR. It could also just be whatever gets you, whatever got you interested in, in covering this? I mean, I think that there's a lot of great, I, I really enjoy this ongoing dispute about this Maltese official, EU official, who was sort of convicted or, or suspected of taking bribes from a Swedish snuff manufacturer. Um, and it's, it's this kind of wild story where like his intermediary guy was like used to own a circus and like just every sort of detail about that case is like sort of delightful. But I will highlight one ECHR case that I covered a couple of years ago, which I really enjoyed, which was a woman from Georgia, the, the country of Georgia, not the American state of Georgia, of course, um, got in trouble with the Georgian government for producing condoms that had like cheeky packaging. And they sort of kind of poked some fun at like the both the Georgian state and Georgian history, as well as like the Georgian like Orthodox church or like the, the sort of church there. And she got in trouble um, for like sort of manufacturing these condoms with the with the Georgian state. And this, the court ultimately sided with her and said it was sort of like, um, you know, this is a freedom of expression sort of issue. But the, the condom packaging was actually quite like aesthetically pleasing. And so it was very nice to use all these photos of nice, of beautiful condom wrappers for my story. I'm very pleased to hear that she uh, that she won her yeah. case. So every, everybody should have the right to uh, to have uh, aesthetically pleasing condom wrappers, yes. should they? Exactly, not? aesthetically pleasing condom wrappers protected by the European Convention on Human Rights. It seems. While you were away, I've mean, I've seen this whole list of things that you've been uh, reading. So I wonder if you can narrow it down for us, Molly. What are your recommendations for reading? or maybe listening or maybe watching um, that uh, that you can suggest to uh, to our listeners. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm a pretty avid reader. I think this is like sort of my one and only real, uh, real hobby. Um, I have just started and I will recommend it because I'm quite enjoying it. A graphic novel about uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer. <laughs> which is a sort of odd choice, I think. But it's written by a political cartoonist who actually knew Jeffrey Dahmer in high school. They were friends in high school. Um, and he has a kind of, you know, sort of interesting look into the fact that, um, you know, I think a lot of people sometimes think of serial killers as being these kinds of brilliant lone wolf people who like you just couldn't do anything to stop because this is just how they are and he he really kind of makes this case that like the adults in Jeffrey Dahmer's life really failed him and that if they hadn't failed him that he wouldn't have gone on to do so many like terrible things and the I think the comic is quite sort of well drawn so I would recommend that it's called My Friend Dahmer and I have a second recommendation which is a podcast that I've been listening to called The White Vault um, so if you're into kind of like horror fiction podcast it's really it's really really well done the premise is sort of like a team goes to investigate a weird signal that they're getting from an, an outpost on Svalbard that like um Norwegian island thing um which has like a lot of weird situations with its own like weird border stuff that has nothing to do with the podcast but the podcast is quite well done and it runs for five seasons and then stops which is like sort of my 
favorite way to consume this kind of media because I don't like when things like drag on indefinitely and then at some point I have to make the decision to stop listening to it. Um, so I've been enjoying that. It's quite good. This is the one that on Twitter you were complaining about that they that they're like old fashioned and you cannot binge it and you now have to yeah, wait. Yeah, it's a extremely week to annoying. Find out what happens. Normally, I have this rule where I just like don't start stuff before it's completely finished, so I can just like binge it all at my own time. But it's five seasons long, and I thought there is no way I'm going to catch up when I started this like a year ago before they finish this whole thing. Except that it's really good, and so I've just been compulsively listening to it. And now there's two episodes left in the whole show, and now I have to wait two more weeks, and then two more weeks after that. And honestly, I don't know how people used to live their lives this way with television, where you just have to like wait every week. This is terrible. You'd think we'd be we used to waiting, uh, covering international court cases. But yeah, no. <laughs> I guess we wait enough uh, professionally to to be annoyed in, in our personal. Yeah, exactly. Lives. I, I'm constantly annoyed in my professional life. I don't also want to be annoyed in my personal life. I think. Well, thank you very much, uh, Molly, for. Um filling us in on another court, another set of uh, uh, acronym initials that uh, that we can absorb now and hopefully our listeners can absorb along with us. And um, maybe we'll have another chat to you when the decision is made or when there's some more um, developments on MH17 because uh, I know that that's something both you and Stephanie spend a lot of time uh, working on. Yeah, absolutely. If we don't make you change your hair, will you uh, will you come on as friend of the podcast in some other uh, capacity? Yes, as long as I don't have to get a new haircut, I'm happy to come back on whenever you guys would like to have me. It was really a pleasure. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with JusticeInfo.net, an independent site covering justice efforts for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.